0: Hello pod pals and a very warm welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I'm your host Nicole Davis and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. This is episode 100. I sort of can't believe I'm saying that. It's been almost three years to the day that I launched episode 1 in 2019 without any real sense of what I was getting into. But it's been such a joyous thing and I'm really grateful to the listenership. I'm really grateful as well for all the women who have been guests on Best Girl Grip over the years, because I literally wouldn't be at episode 100 without them. I always ask interviewees about their learning curves, and putting this podcast together has been a huge one for me, and it still is one, and I'm excited for the next 100, and for all the people I have yet to interview. But first, my guest this week is Rose Garnett, the director of BBC Film. Since joining the BBC in 2017, Rose has commissioned and executive produced a wide range of titles, including Joanna Hogg's The Souvenir Part 1 and Part 2, Eliza Hittman's Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, Sean Durkin's The Nest, Steve McQueen's Small Axe, Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog, and Debbie Tucker-Green's Ear for Eye, among many, many others. Rose was also an EP on BBC Three's smash hit adaptation of Sally Rooney's Normal People, produced by Element Pictures. After graduating from Cambridge University, Rose worked in theatre before freelancing as a script editor and producer. Then she joined Film 4, where she would become Head of Creative. Whilst there, Rose developed and executive produced an array of recent successful UK films, including Yorgos Lanthimos' The Favourite, Martin McDonagh's Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Steve McQueen's Widows, Lenny Abrahamson's Room, Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here and Andrea Arnold's American Honey. It was an immense pleasure to talk to Rose about a surfer of topics, from how theatre prepared her for a career in film, what she learned working at Film4, what it means to be a director of a public funder and the considerations that come into play in making that organisation accountable, accessible, inclusive and supportive, to what success looks like and how she and the BBC film team back filmmakers. Unsurprisingly Rose had a lot of wisdom that she was generous enough to share and I know that this is an interview that I myself will be returning to time and time again. Please note that this was recorded remotely over Zoom and there are some occasional audio glitches. This is episode 100 of Best Girl Grip. So I'd love to know if you went to university and if so what you studied there.
1: I went to university and I studied history.
0: Okay why history?
1: Question. I was good at it. I'm quite inquisitive. I like knowing how systems work. I felt like it was going to be English or history and that I'd keep reading books, whatever happened, and what I'd learn in history probably wouldn't have another opportunity to do again.
0: And did you have a sense of a career that you wanted to pursue, or at that point it was following the passion
1: for the subject? No idea. No idea.
0: And so, what did you do after graduating? You know, going out into the world, trying to find your first job, what were you looking into?
1: Well, at university, I, the people, my friends were all quite into theatre and acting. And you couldn't do drama at the university, but there was a lot of, that was a big extracurricular activity with the people I hung out with. And so I began, I knew I didn't want to act. I didn't either want to or didn't have the confidence to write or direct. And when I look back, almost all the people writing, directing were men. And a lot of the women were either on the stage or helping facilitate. You know, now a lot of the generation I was at university with, the women are writing or directing, but it took a lot longer to come into that space. Mm-hmm. And when I look back, I regret that me and my female friends didn't experiment more and just have a go at things. And the men were really good at doing that. They were no better qualified than we were, but we somehow gave them that space and credibility that they could, you know, find out who they were, not just you know, in their mind's eye, but actually by gathering a group of people together and having a go, long story short, it meant I ended up, because I didn't want to act and I didn't think I wanted to write or direct, I ended up producing. So then when I came out of university, I kept on, I loved theatre, also theatre could be really cheaply and quite immediately, theatre was having a sort of good time at that point, this was in the 80s, there was a lot of energy in small pub theatres and there was a generation of people wanting to do quite radical work, and so I just kept doing that.
0: And sometimes that's the best way to do it, though, right? Is to kind of just follow, like keep saying yes, almost like improvisation. Yes, and.
1: Yeah, but there's also a certain level of entitlement that comes with that. You know, that thing of I had a family that gave me the freedom to choose what I wanted to do. That's quite a competent thing to be able to do. You know, I wasn't resourced, but I also didn't worry about money in that sense. Again, if you come from you know, a background that's comfortable, all those things give you the luxury of sort of inventing what you want to do for yourself. It gives you freedom to have that experimental moment, and you know if it didn't work out, I think you have probably got other options. So you're right; it is really good to just be able to follow your gut, but it's quite a luxurious thing to be able to do as well.
0: Yeah, no, that's very true. I'm, I'm glad you raised that. And and what did you understand the producer role to be at that time? Were you kind of very much learning on the job, or did you have a conception of what it was you'd be doing in that role?
1: I had no idea what it was. And in theatre, actually, the reason I stopped producing in theatre or left theatre was, you know, when I got to a certain point, I realised that I didn't, that producing in theatre really split from the creative process. And I wasn't interested in that. I wasn't, you know, producing became much more running a building or the economics of a space. And the level of producing I did in theatre, it was so rough and tumble and so sort of we, so done for pennies with everybody getting paid absolute sort of minimum and that was on a good day that we everybody sort of did everything mm. but fundamentally my job is to make sure there was a space that the the show would start at that moment and in that space that somehow that space would be paid for but because of the way we worked and because we had a theatre group that was quite committed to each other and worked together for a long time we also all creatively sort of built the stories and were part of what that show looked like creatively as well as practically
0: and in hindsight do you think that producing theatre first kind of equipped you with a particular or unique set
1: of skills to then go on to produce film I don't know about unique or particular I think it taught me how important stories were and it taught me how collaborative coming up with a great story is that you need the really gifted people at the centre of it but they very rarely could do it alone and it taught me how rare really really gifted people are.
0: Well, we'll come on to kind of finding uh, the, the rare talent in people. But first, I'd love to know what you kind of consider to be your first official job in the film industry.
1: I mean, in terms of getting paid a weekly salary, it was at Film4 working for Peter Roth in 2014. Before that, I'd been freelance. I had young children and did a mix. You know, that's how I, I wanted a, an informal life. Um, My husband travelled a lot. So in terms of a sort of committed job to an organisation, yeah, it's on
0: And then did that give you kind of like a path that you sort of were like, right, I know what I'm doing now or I know what I'm doing next or where I want to go. Or again, it was just kind of doing what you loved at the time and seeing
1: where it took you. Doing what I loved at the time and seeing where it took me. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But also finding out it was the first time I'd really worked in a big organisation and finding out how much I like that and how much big organisations have to offer. And how actually helping big organisations harness everything they've got to offer so that they're really their most helpful version of talent and stories, as opposed to thinking big organisations are oppressive or tiring or too institutionalised, all of which can be true, felt quite exciting.
0: And I know that you, you're credited with kind of various um, producer roles, kind of associate, co-producer, exec producer. I'm wondering if you can maybe speak to the kind of nuances, how that changes, how your responsibilities change in those different capacities.
1: Well, I think exec producer for me, the definition is in some way you've helped finance that film. I think a lot of other producer roles are ways of sort of giving people credit who maybe had more amorphous or nebulous, a bad day nebulous good day, amorphous, but quite hard to say exactly what their job was Role, But I think when you see an exec producer credit on a film, you believe that, uh, you know, on the whole, I interpret that, that somebody's brought money to the table, or maybe they run the production company, but somebody else within the company has actually done the producing. But, you know, and credits are a really interesting conversation, not for today. But, you know, films have a lot of credits on them now. And it's, you know, I think probably a conversation for the next couple of years, of particularly around the producer space of you know making sure more and more actors take producer credits you know just that you know what does being a producer actually mean is it in its pure terms an undervalued role I think Mm. it probably is and I'm very admiring of every producer out there
0: absolutely like interrogating what it means and not taking it for granted and then I know coming back to kind of your time at Film4 you were head of creative uh, development at Film4 and then before becoming director of BBC Film And thinking about that idea of institutions and and harnessing their helpfulness, I'm wondering if you could speak to how you steer or mould a vision at a public funding body that's true to you and your tastes as an individual, but that also satisfies the remit of that funding body, you know, whatever that is that you were brought in to do, you know, how do you balance those two ambitions?
1: I don't think you do have to balance them. And I don't think it It should be, I don't think it's binary like that. And I think if you are trying to balance them, then probably something's gone slightly askew. I think you take that job in order to reflect that institution and the version of that institution that you and your team and the bigger institution are trying to reflect. And I think you have to be accountable, present, very open about what you believe will make the best version of the piece of work. But I think you have to be very vigilant but it doesn't reflect your individual taste. You know, and listen, everybody brings taste to everything. So it's not about sort of not having a, a palette. And I think it's about bringing your expertise. I think it's about bringing your knowledge of the other work that's in the world, the work that's gone before, the work that might come afterwards, you know, and part of that filmmaking team's job is just to make their best version of the work that you're talking about. Your job is to bring everything around it and help contextualise it and give it the space and the freedom and the rigour that you as, part of a landscape can bring, I think it's important that people know that you have opinions and that you do have a point of view and that you're very, you know, I think it's really important when you're a commissioner that when you say no to something and we say no to most things, we have to, that's our job. Saying no is, is an important job of saying yes in some ways because everything that's not being made through you is a statement, albeit a statement in absence. So it's not that it's not about not having a palette or an individual taste, but it's about that, that never dominates. You know, you're never making anything just for you, but you mm-hmm. are making things that you know the organisation you're part of. It will, you'll help bring out the best in that project, and also that project will bring something to the organisation you work for. So it's a sort of really benign symbiotic partnership.
0: And backtracking slightly, thinking about point of view and taste. You know, having studied history, having worked in theatre, how did you develop your own tastes in filmmaking and and your passion for filmmaking?
1: Listen, my taste in filmmaking is still, you know, what, what feels authentic, what isn't boring, what feels like ideally, you know, not too generic. You know, in some senses, it's really quite simple. It's like, is it good? Will other people want to watch it? Will it stand the test of time? And what does the best version of itself look like? And what does success for this project look like? So, you know, we make about 18 films a year. Each of those 18 films probably have a different version of success, which doesn't mean that they can't go beyond that version or surprise everybody. But it's not all films don't have to play the same role, either for the organisation that funds them, like the BBC, or for the audience, or for the filmmakers. The opposite of one size fits all. But it becomes about what do you think will work? And why should the BBC fund it? You know, And how can the BBC help it? How can we be a helpful and thoughtful? Because one of the great things about working in public service is you're there to hopefully be part of the solution and to find out how you can be helpful, as opposed to what's the sort of transactional process? You know, is this going to be a sort of financially viable piece of work, which I think probably in the private sector is much more of a priority. And obviously it's great if things make money because that makes life easier for the filmmaker, makes life easier for the landscape, makes life better for distributors. You know, success is a good thing. But the fact is, you know, we are also allowed to ask other questions for why we make things
0: yeah, absolutely. And thinking about the credits and your accrued at Film 4, you know, they include some of the titles that arguably redefined its brand, Under the Skin, Ex Machina, The Lobster, Carol, some of my favourite films of the last decade, I have to say. I'm wondering if you arrived at that position with a sense of the filmmakers you wanted to work with, or if it was just more about opening the doors to a different kind of storytelling, and those are the filmmakers that came through those doors at the time?
1: No, I arrived there and a lot of those all those films are happening. That was very much going and working and learning under Tessa Ross's vision. And so I felt, you know, film four is massive learning curve for me and a really extraordinarily sort of valuable team to be part of. Tessa was an amazing boss to have Channel Four with its and film four within it with its remit with space where you were there to be, you know, doing what the market couldn't do. Those things are very liberating. And but also, you know, learning how those things are liberating without ever falling on the side of indulgent or niche or Mm. entitled. I don't know. I'm not claiming we always fell on the right side of that. But it was an amazing few years where I learned a lot with great people. But that sort of palette of films you just described was the film for space that Esther had built. And I was just really lucky to be part of it.
0: You've been credited, I think it was in the Guardian article, with with having a Midas touch um, and thinking about that idea of harnessing or, or helping to establish rare talent and, you know, helping them onto their, into their careers. How have you honed that instinct or ability to detect good stories and good filmmakers?
1: I work with the most amazing team, mainly women, <laughs> all brilliant. And it's a collective endeavour and it's a collective endeavour, you know, alongside, you know, in a a dynamic and brave and really alive film community in this country, mainly in this country at the BBC, sometimes internationally. So there's, you know, there's a sort of, and I think in the film industry, you have to be quite careful about the cult personality. It really does take a village, every film or town or whatever metaphor you want to use. And I think what we do at BBC Film, me and my colleagues, is we are very straightforward. We're very clear about what we think we are here to do. And I think we're, pretty good at what we do now I think we're good at reading scripts I think we're good at interpreting even if a script comes in quite messy or very early what the endeavor or the aspiration or the desire is for that film it's about really believing in what those that group of filmmakers or that filmmaker is saying to you they want to make and why they want to make it and then just really backing that but backing that doesn't mean a sort of free-for-all or letting that filmmaker do whatever they want it's about backing it both as a sort of interrogator supporter team maker <laughs> friend financier all of it so that you keep that river and you keep the pressure on the excellence backing something is you helping you know keep the boundaries and the discipline and the aspiration and the ambition alive even on the really bad days when the budget isn't quite working or a filmmaker's in their edit and the edit isn't, ex- you know, suddenly they're finding out they're making quite a different film from the film they imagined three or four years ago. But this film mm-hmm. that they've actually made, it's equally exciting, but about allowing them to free themselves for the, the imaginary
0: film they made for so long in their heads. Mm-hmm. You've covered some of it there with this idea of, as you say, kind of backing and, and keeping the kind of rigour and discipline and allowing them kind of the possibility of being any kind of filmmaker that they want to. But I'm wondering, you know, if we can go more specifically into what it means to support a filmmaker and and what you're doing to kind of allow them to, to dream big or to create films that they want to.
1: I think every film and every filmmaker and every filmmaking team is really different. You know, I think sometimes it's about giving them a lot of time and space. I think sometimes it's down to real sort of financial resource, which is they can give up all their different day jobs so they can get on with the writing. I think sometimes it's about introducing them to producers that are going to really support them. I think sometimes it's about giving them permission to think differently about something or they'd always imagine somebody in a certain part, you know, maybe talking about who else could be in it. I think it's about sometimes introducing to the films they didn't know you know, so they can go and really find out the context and history of some of the work they're involved in. And it's very practical, you know, BBC Film offer, and we've got the most extraordinary legal and physical and production team. So it's about, you know, reminding them and reassuring them that not anybody, you know, we're all asking questions all the time. We're all asking for help all the time. The practicalities have to meet the imagination and the creativity that ultimately making a film is a really, really nuts and bolts process about a series of people turning up on the day and everything then working on a really practical and technical basis as well as an imaginative creative one and where those where that creative world and that really practical world intersect and come together for the actual filming and how you make that the most sort of functional space possible with that filmmaker at the centre of it being allowed to make their vision, you know, come into reality.
0: I've got a bit of an esoteric question next, and it's, it's, it's this idea, I guess, of risk-taking, but how do you personally, in your job, encourage experimentation and failure?
1: I mean, we try not to use the word risk or failure, not in a sort of, that sounds really pompous or really sort of hippie, it's neither. You know, listen, by definition, we don't have huge budgets. We very rarely deal in big bits of IP. We don't distribute, you know, we're an end user, but we don't distribute, so everything we do... In that, in a technical sense, as a risk. So it, you can't think about it like that. You have to say, do we all believe in this? Can we back it wholeheartedly? You know, we're making films for a long life. We're making films to help change the landscape. Um, we're making films for a filmmaking community to grow up in this country and you know remain confident around sort of British stories. We're making films for the BBC to you know remain at the sort of vanguard of whose stories are getting told, why they're getting told. So there's lots of versions of success as well.
0: And thinking about some of the films that have come out over the past couple of years under the BBC Film banner, uh, *Souvenir* Part One and Two, *The Power of the Dog* recently, um, *Benediction*, *Small Acts*. It occurs to me that you know these filmmakers, Steve McQueen, Jane Campion, they're filmmakers at the top of their game. So when you're working with people that have arguably found their voice, what does that relationship then look like as
1: opposed to working with people that are making their debut features? I mean, it's different and it evolves, and actually. That, you can't categorise it like that. You're just each person you're working with is the person you're working with, whether it's their first film or their tenth film, and each relationship is is an individual relationship with its own dynamic and what you're bringing to the relationship, what that relationship needs, what that relation, how that relationship's going to evolve. And obviously, the more you work with filmmakers, the greater the trust grows and the confidence in each other and the sort of resilience around it you know, and obviously with first-time filmmakers, whom we work with many, and it's an extremely exciting and dynamic part of the job. And really, you know, and alongside an amazing, you know, Evie Yates, who runs the first-time, many of the first-time filmmaking projects, the way she builds those relationships and conversations is there's a whole generation coming through that just gives me goosebumps. And I'm in awe of what they're all doing. But I don't think, you know, again, it's like each... Each conversation is individual. There's no sort of one size fits all. And each film that those filmmakers you've just quoted go to make, that's a new film. That's a new project for them. You know, they're finding out what it is. Each time is an adventure.
0: I've never thought about it like that, but in a way they're all first-time filmmakers yeah. because it's their first time making that film. Yeah.
1: Jane hasn't made a feature film. For, you know, this is her first film with you know, a male protagonist and she was fascinated and interesting and amazing about that. And of course you go, this is a real adventure for her. You know, and I think the one thing that we have in common when you quote all the filmmakers we work with, nobody's turning up for a day job. You know, the world we live in, there's not enough money to be made that everybody, you know, whether it's their first film or their 11th film, each one is just the beginning of a, of a new story and a new adventure and a new relationship and a new piece of work. That Everybody's collectively finding out what its shape and flavour is going to be.
0: And I suppose that's what keeps them at the top of their game, or or uh, filmmakers that have relevance and something to say, is the fact that they're never resting on their laurels or being complacent. They're constantly wanting to explore mm-hmm. these stories. I want to come back to a word that you used when you were kind of talking about the the principles that perhaps guide BBC film and and your your tenets, and you used the word straightforward, which I think is quite interesting. Do you ever have moments of doubt? Like how how do you maintain a level of straightforwardness when it comes to Filmmakers and speaking to filmmakers.
1: Yeah, of course you have moments of doubt. You have moments of doubt about yourself, and you have moments of doubt about, you know, is it, are you doing the best job you can do? And you have moments of doubt about, you know, is the overall picture of everything you've commissioned is is it representing the organisation you want to be part of? And we're at the BBC. Is it representing value for the licence fee payer and value for you know the people watching all those things? Because you know we are both working with and accountable to all sorts of different stakeholders, not just the filmmakers, but our other financial partners, uh, distributors, cinema-going audiences and audiences at home. Yeah, we're giving away money. That is incredibly privileged and massive responsibility. Every time we give away money, that's something else not being made. So you have to really know why you're making it. So do you have moments of doubt? Not, Yeah, not doubt exactly. But you have moments of very rarely misgivings, because we do really sort of interrogate everything we choose to back. But you have moments of disappointment, of course, and you have moments of finding out what you would do differently next time. Every great filmmaker or filmmaking team should have big moments of doubt. They should all wake up 3am in the morning thinking, what am I doing? Making all this money in order to tell my story. Who do I think I am? That's their job, to have that doubt. Our job is to keep backing them up and to help them avoid mistakes
0: And then I'd love to know if there's something particular that frustrates you about the film industry at this moment in time.
1: I mean, frustrates me, worries me, you know, people going back to cinema for the sort of films we make in enough numbers. The next two years is going to be extremely important around that space re-establishing itself. You know, how we define what a film is, where a film gets seen first, what's the natural life cycle for a film where film will live? What happens if you know you don't have a piece of IP? You're not involved in franchise. How will new voices be supported? How will original pieces of work be supported? People not going to cinema to, do, to see them. Can streamers, you know, replace what were those extraordinary and will continue to be? I really believe extraordinary moments of a sort of collective joy of finding a new voice in that sort of dark space of the cinema, and you walk out and you're you're changed. You know, that's irreplaceable. That can't happen at home and will we send you know keep our sense of imagination and adventure to go and support those spaces and go and meet those filmmakers in that really unique space and our job is to keep our confidence and to keep making those films but also to be really supple about where they live in cinemas where festivals sit when they come on to you know televisions what they look like what defines a film you know how do we keep the budgets up with cost inflation because you know if you squeeze budgets too much, then by definition the films become small and domestic and become interior, which is exciting, but that should be because that's what that film needs rather than that's all we can ever afford to give them. You know, one of the things we've done over the last couple of years is really think about how you give, you know, women filmmakers, particularly new women filmmakers, proper budgets, you know, so they don't get caught in that space of the domestic, the kitchen sink. I love I love domestic kitchen sink films, but I want it to be a choice and if you know they want a bigger palette you know you don't niche people without me you know unconsciously that you you know people are choosing the scale of the work now, obviously you have to raise the funds for that and other financiers have to join you in that so there has to be a vision at the center of it but uh, that when you know that nobody is put in a box because that's what you're meant to do at that stage
0: yeah 100 and then conversely i'd love to know if if there's something in particular that excites you about the film industry at the moment
1: with the proliferation of high end TV and streaming, and listen, I've worked in a lot of TV over the last couple of years. and I've loved it. I've loved the sort of length of storytelling and the possibilities, and having all those hours to fill. But you know that so many brilliant young people don't want to make films, and that there are so many voices who still want to be heard and want to be heard in that space, and who have such sort of profoundly filmic sensibilities. So what excites me about the film industry is is all the films that you know we're making and other people are making. And all those stories that none of us have met yet, made by filmmakers that none of us know yet.
0: And then I'm wondering if there's something that you consider to be like the biggest learning curve of your career or, or something that perhaps you wish you learned
1: earlier. So, all the cliches trust your instincts, really listen, really ask for help. And if you don't know something, really say it. But go and say it to the right person who can, you know, invite, you know, the right people. Yeah, ask for help. Don't think, if you haven't got the answer, don't say you've got the answer. Um, and if you love something, be passionate. Don't be ironic. Be earnest. Come out of the closet as somebody who loves something, who'll die in the ditch for something, who'll jump up and down.
0: Does that get easier the further along your career you are, the idea of asking for help and admitting that you don't know something? Or now because you're your head of BBC film, is it almost harder to sometimes say, I don't know?
1: No, it's not harder at all. And also the awful truth is, you know, every day there's more and more stuff I don't know. But there's also more and more stuff I do know you know, just by sheer dint of time spent, you kind of begin to go, I remember when that happened there and that's what we did there or remember when we did that and that didn't quite work and you sort of have a bigger pool of experience to call on and you also, you know, hopefully have built a kind of trusted network that you can also pull on their experience So so it becomes a collective kind of library of what did we do, how did we do it and did we get it right? But I also think it's about making sure that you're in an environment where, you know, asking for help is respected and taken seriously and being in an environment where asking for help is seen as a sign of strength, not weakness. And if you're in an environment where, you know, asking for help or saying, I'm not sure what I'm doing and I need some support, if that's something that, you know, you feel unable to be able to do in your work space, then that's a problem about your space, not you.
0: That's kind of triggered another question. And as we have time, I'd love to kind of get your take on as an institution, but then also film industry as a space as a whole. How can we encourage people to ask for help? Be that, you know, on a practical level, or we're all talking about mental health much more now. How can we
1: inspire people to ask for help more? It just does have to come down to the doing of it. And it's quite hard. You know, it's also nerve wracking because if you're the director, you know, it's much better to ask for help as much as possible before you start shooting. You know, really prepare, really get ready. Think of all the eventualities. Find yourself a couple of great directors you sit down with and go, tell me how, what was it like your first film? What was your biggest, you know, you know, asking for help is really different from that can't be an excuse for not being prepared Mm -hmm. or not having done your homework or not having done your due diligence. I don't want to get on a call with somebody where, you know, they begin to ask me lots of questions. I'm like, you are not ready. You know, this is not okay. I don't want to be doing... Your job for you. So there's two, there's subtleties in this. Listen, I hope we do. It's what we talk about a lot, and we try all the time. And that's about being acceptable, about being open, about not being mysterious, about showing our processes and how we work and how we got to the decisions we got to and what went into those decisions, even if they're not always decisions uh, some of the filmmaking teams we work with would welcome or necessarily agree with. I think it's about giving people we work with the confidence that we are working with them. In a partnership we're not working with them for them to prove anything to us you know if we're backing a project or developing or helping finance a project we're in it sort of through thick and thin we're in it because we love it because we think it's worthwhile because we think this work needs to be in the world and sort of everything beyond that we can all work out together if people tell us what's happening and tell us what they need so i think it's about being genuinely open and i think it's about people not you know the expectation is all around building a great piece of work there's no other expectation
0: and then coming towards the end i'd love to know if there's something that you consider to be like the proudest moment of your career or something that stands out as a bit of a career highlight
1: oh my god no i mean so many things i there's so many films i feel incredibly lucky to have been part of there's so many organization you know so many organizations i've got to know or been lucky enough to work with that i feel lucky with you know i'm sounding sentimental actually probably the career highlight is the group of people I work with every day we're an amazing team and we're a kind team and that's probably the thing that I'm proudest of
0: and then finally what is a film from a woman director that you think is a bit of a hidden gem or something that you just like to recommend
1: today god there's so many I think a film that's not seen enough is Debbie Tucker Green's second coming it's you know and I think it's just a film that would come out of America or Europe. It would be sort of seen in a sort of elusive master, you know, masterpiece section. I think Girlfriends, Claudia Viles, brilliant, oh, nineteen seventy-eight. You know, it's a seminal piece. And they're just two of many.
0: Rose, thank you so much for your time. It's been a, such a pleasure and a real highlight for, for, for my career to speak with you soon. So thank you so much. As always, thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review, and subscribe. It really does help to get the word out. If this is your first time listening, there is a whole bunch of episodes to keep you busy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Acast. But if you're up to date, hold tight, and I'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode.